Matthew 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Start this morning by asking a question. How many of you have ever been to Manhattan, to New York City, downtown proper? Okay. Well, if you have gone or next time you go there, look up when you're on the outskirts of that New York City borough. And if you look carefully enough, you will probably see a fishing line that is strung between poles and buildings well above the height of traffic and interruptions, but it's there. I've seen it. You might ask if you have no idea what I'm talking about, a fishing line, what, what's the purpose of that? Well, it's not for catching fish. Interestingly, this little string, it's, it encircles most of downtown New York City, and it creates what is known as the Manhattan Aruv, E-R-U-V. It's been there, maintained every week in case a tree knocks it down or it breaks or something like that since 1999. It costs about $125,000 to $150,000 a year to maintain, but the city of New York isn't responsible for this, this fishing line. Some of you may know what it is, but most of you are probably asking what in the world is this and what does it have to do with Matthew 12? Well, the fishing line and the space within the boundary of that line called the Arab, is there for the purpose of allowing observant Jewish people to travel freely and carry their belongings and their children on the Sabbath day. By tradition, Jewish people are not allowed to carry any burden, including a, a child, from the private domain, their home, to the public domain. That means their wallet, their keys, their belongings, and even their infants must stay in their homes. So what this Arab does in Manhattan by the approval of the rabbis there is to place everything within the boundary in the private domain rather than the public. So the Arab in Manhattan is huge, but it's not the only one. Right next door in Brooklyn is actually the first place where I saw something like this. There are entire streets and sections of town encircled by similar string line, and there are hundreds of cities and neighborhoods around the world with these Arabs as well, some of them even larger than Manhattan. Now, besides learning something new, you might be asking, again, what does this have to do with our passage today? Well, as we come to chapter 12 in Matthew, we come to what is known as and often referred to as the Sabbath controversies. Jesus had many opposers, but chief among them were the religious group known as the Pharisees, and along with them, sort of their counterparts, the lawyers. And we've seen them challenge Jesus already on things like the authority to forgive sins. And we've seen them accuse him of working by the power of the devil. But what becomes chief among all their complaints, and we read this in all the Gospels, is their accusation that Jesus and his disciples keep violating the Sabbath laws. The Jewish Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is 24 hours of rest that was commanded by God for the Israelites, and it was patterned after God's day of rest after six days of creation. Now, since the resurrection of Christ, as Christians, we typically observe the Lord's Day on Sunday as our day of holy rest and worship. And depending on how you grow up, what kind of church you went to, that might have meant a number of things. It might have meant that you simply went to church on Sunday, or it may have meant for some families that you didn't make purchases or go out to eat or do yard work or that kind of thing. But for devout Jewish people, 
The simple command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy was one of the pinnacle and, and really most notable ways to be observant or not observant. But that simple command had also turned into much more than a simple command. For instance, there isn't anywhere in scripture that forbids a mother or father from carrying their baby outside their home on Saturday. So why do Jewish people in Manhattan need a special encircling Arab, a special zone to do that? Well, to answer that, that tradition really comes from what is called the Mishnah. Now bear with me, we're in the weeds a little bit. Eventually we'll come out and get back on dry land, but the Mishnah is a written record of what is known as the Jewish oral law or the oral Torah. These are interpretations, explanations, and further instructions from the rabbis throughout the centuries. You may have heard it commonly stated that there's around 600 commandments in the Old Testament. Those are God's words. But in the Mishnah, there are thousands of regulations added to fence in those Old Testament laws. By Jesus' day, the question became not whether you followed simply the laws in Scripture or in the Torah, but whether you were observant of the regulations and the traditions found mostly in the Mishnah. And the Pharisees and lawyers, back to Jesus' sort of enemies here, his, his detractors, they were experts in these traditions. And it was these man-made additions that they were holding Jesus accountable to in passages like the one we have today. It was also these man-made traditions that were the heavy burdens that Jesus refers to that the Pharisees placed upon the shoulders of the people. Now, all of that background is going to be significant as we read, and I promise we'd come back to where we were going. So let's read Matthew 12, and for now, let's read down through verse number 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the, ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there, verse 9, and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in the pit on a Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pause for a moment for prayer. Lord, thank you for this scripture. I pray that we would be able to understand what's going on in this passage to see the significance of what you're teaching us. 
we're removed from many of these experiences, but we are not removed from you, our Lord and teacher. So illuminate our minds this morning by the Holy Spirit to see and to comprehend. Thank you, Lord, for your glory and your name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to continue through verse 21 today, but I want to stop there because it sets the scene really for the rest of Matthew's gospel. Here is Jesus, God's son, the Messiah, now pit against these religious leaders, not on the terms of scripture and God's authority, but now on the terms of tradition and man's authority. The Pharisees simply could see no good in what Jesus was doing. He was to them an imposter, a, a loose teacher, a friend of the, the common people, the tax collectors and the sinners. But what they missed was that Jesus came to show more than just a time of joy and healing. Jesus came as God's servant, as God's son, to reveal the heart of God's character to the world, starting with his own people. If you're following along in the back of your bulletin, you'll see this as kind of the main idea. Jesus is the beloved servant and son who reveals, teaches, and redeems according to the mercy and goodness of God. And we're going to see that in this passage in three ways as we look down through. First, we see he is the Lord who reveals kingdom priorities. He is the Lord who reveals kingdom priorities. In these first nine verses, we read an interesting account. The words that we ended with last week of my yoke is easy and my burden is light are now illustrated by Matthew as he records this interaction with the Pharisees. So imagine the scene. Jesus and his followers were, were sort of itinerant. They were a bit nomadic at times. They traveled, they taught, they preached, they healed, and they seemed to be always busy with this work. And we get a zoomed-in view of this Sabbath day. But I would imagine that it's actually probably a picture of what many of their Sabbath days looked like as they spent them together. The scene places them walking near the grain fields. Older translations might say cornfields, but these would have been heads of barley or wheat in rural areas where agriculture was everything. And we know that from Israel's history and from the Old Testament, gleaning from grain fields was not only allowed, but it was expected. Deuteronomy and Leviticus both show us the ways that farmers were to leave the edges of their crops unharvested for the hungry. And perhaps the most well-known picture of that practice is in the story of Ruth, who was gleaning in the field of Boaz, who became her husband and her redeemer. So the controversy that arises is not over the fact that the disciples are picking somebody else's grain, that might arise in our day, but rather over the timing. Look at verse number two. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, we're not told specifically that Jesus was himself picking and eating the ears of grain. But as the leader, as the rabbi, as the teacher, he was responsible for his disciples' actions in the Pharisees' mind. And surely they thought, we have him caught here. We mentioned in the introduction the Mishnah and the thousands of additional regulations that were sort of added to explain the scripture. Well, just on observing the Sabbath, there are hundreds of them, and simply concerning what counts as work on the Sabbath, there are 39. Let me read, I may not read all of these, but just to give you an idea, this is from the Mishnah, 
course, translated into English. The generative categories of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one, 39. He who sows, plows, reaps, binds sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes, shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins, weaves, makes two loops, weaves two threads, separates two threads, ties, unties, sews two stitches, tears in order to sew two stitches, traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, cures its hide, scrapes it, cuts it up. He who writes two letters, erases two letters in order to write two letters. He who builds, tears down, puts out a fire, kindles a fire, hits with a hammer, and he who transports an object from one domain to another. Lo, these are the 40 generative acts of labor, less one. This would have been in the minds of the Pharisees. Sorry, you had to listen to all that. As they looked at Jesus' disciples on that Sabbath day, and they were picking grain and eating it. Now, that's just one section on one simple command, which started as remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, had turned into here is what exact righteous behavior looks like down to the T. Now, was it intended to be burdensome from the beginning? I don't think so. It probably started as very practical, but it turned into heavy burden. These are one part of the regulations from one simple command. So now imagine keeping up with the thousands of regulations from the other commands. What was not lawful, according to that, the Mishnah, was reaping a harvest and preparing a meal. Were the disciples reaping a harvest and preparing a meal? By the letter, maybe. But Jesus is going to show us in this passage that the letter, especially of the Mishnah, was not the point of the Sabbath command at all. Look at verses three and four. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus gives, as he almost always does, an example. And what he's doing here is using a common teaching tool, arguing from the less to the greater. We saw him do that several ways in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What is the structure of his argument here? Well, in this case, he gives two examples. And the first one, which we just read, is an example of David eating the consecrated bread, the show bread, which was by law only to be eaten by the priests. This was a provision for the priests to be cared for. The bread was part of the temple services. It was a symbolic reminder of God's provision for his people. And the letter of the law said it was only to be eaten by the priests. But in the case that Jesus quotes from, and we can read that in the book of Samuel in the Old Testament, the letter of the law was not used against David and his men. Rather, the spirit of the law, that the bread was symbolic of God's provision, was actually strengthened. Jesus appeals to this story with these words, have you not read? Of course they had read this story. 
Jesus was, was challenging tradition with the actual revelation of God and his character. Of course, these religious leaders had read the books of Samuel and they had seen this story, but the question really was, had they understood it? Had they seen past the letter of the law and seen into the character of God within the pages of scripture? As we read on, the next example may be a little less familiar. Uh, the story and example of David was one instance, but in verse five, Jesus gives a continual instance. He says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now this comes and we have to go just for a second to Numbers 28. Listen as I read verses nine and 10. It says, on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year, old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil in its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering in its drink offering. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's referring to this, this idea, this priestly work of the Sabbath offering. The action that the priests took every Sabbath killing the lambs, working with the flour and grain, mixing them with oil and completing all of this work. These were things, actions in themselves that were prohibited by the Mishnah and its regulations. But were the priests breaking God's law? Of course not. They were serving God by their action, by commemorating the Sabbath with their special offering. They were keeping it holy. Now, as I said a minute ago, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. And here's why we know that. Because in verse 6, he says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In both instances, the temple was in the picture. David taking the, the, the bread of the presence for he and his men and the priest sacrificing in the temple on the Sabbath. And really, when you add them up, you have two insurmountable greats, the temple and King David. Both of those would have been highly revered, never questioned by the Pharisees. So when Jesus says something greater is here, that's a shocking statement. And it probably didn't earn Jesus any more favor with these men. What was there that's greater than the temple? We could perhaps say it was God's kingdom coming in or the mighty works being wrought or the message. But verse eight really clears it up for us. It says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater because he's arguing from David and the temple up to himself. Jesus, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath and he is greater than the temple and he's greater than the Sabbath. You see, in their rigorous keeping of traditions and regulations, and in the heaping of heavy burdens on people's shoulders, the Pharisees had gotten the cart before the horse. In Mark's gospel, these controversies start earlier in, in the record. And one of Jesus' responses to one of these Sabbath controversies give great light. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Notice that the Sabbath was made. We could ask by who? The Lord, of course, he made the Sabbath. He instituted it. 
after his sixth day of creation and on that seventh day he rested from that he patterned the sabbath day jesus is lord of the sabbath do you see the authority do you see the care in his words there in mark the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath in other words god's laws were created not for the sake of law but for the sake of good not for the sake of of impingement but for the sake of blessing and flourishing the traditions had turned god's laws into anything but blessing and flourishing they had turned them into burden burden that almost nobody could bear we skipped verse 7 but i want to go back because jesus quotes in verse 7 for the second time in matthew from hosea 6. he says and if you had known what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice you would have not condemned the guiltless hosea 6 6 of course says i desire steadfast love which is mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of god rather than burnt offerings now did god command sacrifices yes did he command burnt offerings of course but they were never to be sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices they were to point to mercy steadfast love and as we read in hosea the knowledge of god god wants us to know him his goodness and his love through his word and his commandments scripture the bible is not primarily a rule book or an instruction manual it is primarily revelation because when we read the bible we read about our god and what he is like jesus is bringing them back to these priorities i've called them kingdom priorities but really they are god's priorities in all time his goodness his mercy his character revealed and what the letter of the human regulations blurred and shaded jesus came to clarify and proclaim could ask you here for a moment do you see the bible as a book of burdensome rules of an outdated moral guide that that seems to be behind the times if that's your view of scripture i would implore you to look again read and see the heart of the creator within who reveals himself for the good of his creation who calls us to himself through his son and promises blessing rather than burden when we follow him secondly as we read on we see that he jesus is the teacher who shows us true righteousness this next example that matthew gives is an illustration of what jesus just taught because it illustrates his lordship it illustrates his goodness and mercy and it illustrates what is truly lawful or righteous now matthew's account reads as if these events happened on the same day we don't know that they did i like to think that they did but we know that it at least happened on a sabbath day and this time instead of being in a rural area by the grain fields we find jesus entering the pharisees arena as it were into the synagogue now this was a public place a teaching place 
really the center of Jewish culture in the towns. And Jesus frequented probably the synagogues, just like Paul would have in the book of Acts as he shared the message of the gospel. We know that Jesus in the city synagogue, I believe in Capernaum, had read from that great passage in Isaiah indicating that he was the Messiah who is to come. So now in the synagogue, in public, uh, the, the discourse happens. This, this interaction happens and it serves to teach. The synagogue is a place of teaching. And this is probably some of the most important teaching that had taken place in this synagogue in a long time. Verse number 10, a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? The scene starts with a man, a man with a withered hand, atrophied muscles, some kind of a disability. Luke tells us that it was his right hand. It wouldn't have been a deadly condition, but it was a true impairment. It would have made it difficult for the man to do any work. And because of that, we probably could assume that he was a man who needed help and mercy in more than just the healing of his hand. Disabilities were often misunderstood, often seen as, as indication of sin or even demon possession. Who knows what ridicule this man had faced because of his withered hand. Now, we don't get much of the work up to this account, but had this man asked Jesus to heal him? Had Jesus indicated that he would heal them? Something sparked the question from the Pharisees, and it looks like it was a good old-fashioned trap. Because it says they asked him this question so that they might accuse him. We'll see these kind of things happen several times as we continue through Matthew. The question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The word lawful is important. It, it means more than just legal or permissible, although it doesn't mean less than that. And maybe that's how they were using it. But Jesus would show its full intent in just a moment. And Jesus appeals now, this time, not to scripture as he did before, but now he appeals to their experience. We read in verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Now, if this situation was a setup by the Pharisees, if they wanted to catch Jesus in this little predicament, well, then what Jesus does is, is kind of humorous because he turns it around and sets up his own little predicament for them to answer. Livestock was money, simply put. Livestock was value. Nobody would want to lose one of their herd. The people showed incredible care for their animals, especially sheep with their ritual significance. And of course, they would rescue the sheep from the pit on the Sabbath. And that idea seems to be just understood. That's, that's an act of necessity. It's an act of mercy. And Jesus, again, uses the lesser to the greater argument. He does it again, because like we've seen before in the Sermon on the Mount with the sparrows, remember? How much more does your heavenly father care for you if he cares for the sparrows? Well, here the question is, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? 
What seemed obvious to the crowd, they would certainly rescue their sheep out of the pit, was met with what should have been even more obvious, that helping someone, a person made in God's image, no matter how lowly or despised, was much more important than saving a sheep. Do you see how far the lens of human regulations had skewed their vision of the Sabbath commands? I want to go back for a minute and read from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, because of that, the Lord and made it holy. A holy day of rest. Do you see the intent? A day of rest and reverence for you, your family, your servants, and even your livestock. It was never intended to be burdensome. Rather, it was intended to be merciful. This is what happens when we elevate human tradition above God's revelation in Scripture. We turn what God intended to bless and reveal into burden and distress. We take a command that was meant for holiness and blessing and turn it into exclusion and heaviness. And Jesus really tells the whole story in verse number 12. He closes with this. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Is healing good? Yes, it is. Is helping somebody in need good? Yes, yes, it is. Showing mercy and even breaking a sweat, like I am now, not for personal gain, but for kindness and love and justice, doesn't profane the Sabbath commandment. It actually bolsters it. Think of it. This man with a withered hand had struggled his whole life. Jesus mercifully healed him on this Sabbath day. And it was probably the first day in his life that he had any kind of real rest. For he was made whole. It is lawful, Jesus says, to do good. And again, the word lawful doesn't simply mean legal. The word has deeper reaches, which I think Jesus intended, because it means right and proper. It is not just okay to do good on the Sabbath. It is right and proper, Jesus is saying, to do good on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were experts on what not to do, but what they had missed in all of their regulations and heaping them on others' shoulders was what to do, and that was to do good. They had emptied the law of God of its fullness and of its goodness. Isaiah 1 has a word from the Lord that is very scathing, but it's telling and it's applicable to our passage today because God says this to his people, bring no more vain or empty offerings 
Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves clean. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And listen to this. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. God told his people through the prophet Isaiah, even in that time, much like Jesus is telling the Pharisees in his day, he's not happy with empty religion. In Isaiah's case, it was vain offerings, empty offerings, empty religion. That was the indictment. They kept the Sabbath day. They kept the festivals. They even made the sacrifices but there was none of the heart of God's goodness in their works. What did they neglect? God said, cease doing evil, do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It is lawful, that is right and proper, not just to not do bad, but to do good. Why? Because God is good. It is lawful. It is righteous to show mercy. Why? Because God is merciful. Verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. While Jesus showed his goodness, the Pharisees dug their heels in. This is the first indication of intent that we read in Matthew that at this point they had set their minds and hearts totally hardened against God and his servant to kill him. Quickly, number three, we see that he is the servant passionately redeems the despised. The man with a withered hand served as a picture, an image of a lowly person, a despised person, a a disadvantage, a disability, a, a humble condition. And what did Jesus do? He showed mercy even amid great resistance. And he kept doing it. It says in verses 15 and 16, many followed him and he kept healing them all. And he ordered them to not make him known. He kept healing Presumably, this was on the same day, on the Sabbath day. He kept doing it. And you might read that and say, yeah, Jesus, stick it to those Pharisees. Show them you don't care about their opinions. But we read that that's not what Jesus was doing. He commanded that. He ordered them not to make him known. Jesus wasn't showing off or gloating in his freedom. He was simply showing mercy. He healed them all. And he told them, don't make a big deal about this. And we might ask the question, why? Why not make a big deal about it? Why not make the point even louder? 
Well, Matthew answers that question with a quote from Isaiah 42. And we find that uh, beginning here in verse number 17, where Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not call or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is God's beloved servant and son. We see the servant part here. We saw the son in the first part of the story where he said the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the promised one, the, the, the promised servant that we see all throughout Isaiah's second half of his book, that redeemer, that Messiah, God's spirit upon him. And it says he will be unique. Though he will bring justice, he will not be quarrelsome or boastful. We see that in his secrecy even here. In his discretion, he didn't want to show up the Pharisees. He wanted them to see and believe, to repent. We see it in his words that we read last week, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. But mostly we see it in his mercy. As Isaiah prophesied, and here Matthew says Jesus fulfills the prophecy, we read this little this little this little picture, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A reed, like a hollow blade of grass, kind of stiff, was used as a writing tool, usually, a quill. When we read a, a bruised reed, it would we're thinking of a reed that would have been damaged or become limp and slack, not firm enough to, to hold and to write with. That would happen after a lot of use, a lot of times dipped in the ink or perhaps by damage. Either way, a bruised reed was deemed useless and something to be cast down and replaced. After all, you could go out and get another reed pretty easily. A smoldering wick, of course, is part of a lamp. But when the wick, usually flax, was low, it wouldn't burn brightly. Rather, it would just produce a dark smoke that was kind of smelly and painful to the eyes. So it became not only useless as a lamp, but it was, it was annoying. So usually you'd snuff it out, get a new wick, go on with your life. Do you see the image of Jesus' mercy? This isn't referring to actual reeds and wicks. It's referring to people. The used up and the useless, the despised and the broken, the worn out, the annoying, the lowly and the left out. This servant of God, this Messiah would not trample them, not cast them out, but rather he would redeem them. The tax collectors and sinners who were unable to bear the burdens of the traditions, they were all brutal, smoking wicks in the eyes of the Pharisees. But Jesus, rather than casting them out, he redeemed them. He healed them like the man with the withered hand. 
and he would die for them. And this mercy, this goodness would extend far beyond the reaches of Capernaum or Galilee or even Israel in the name of this humble, lowly, but powerful and victorious servant, the nations would hope. This is you and me. We're the bruised reeds and the the smoking wicks that according to law and religion, we're useless. We can't bear up under it. But by the mercy and goodness of God, we are redeemed. Do you see how Jesus reveals God's heart, his character in a way that was missed in the heavy burdens being thrown upon the people's shoulders? God's intent in Revelation was to show who he is, and he does that chiefly in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus whom the Pharisees now were plotting to destroy and kill would indeed be killed. It would be for mercy and for redemption. After David's great sin, having a man killed, taking his wife, he was confronted, he repented, scripture records truly, And he wrote these words in Psalm 51. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The same God who will not despise the broken and contrite heart is this Jesus who will not crush the bruised reed or stamp out the smoldering wick. Are you broken, cast down one of the bruised reeds or smoking wicks? God does not despise you in your brokenness. The Lord Jesus does not cast you down further in your despair. Rather, as we saw in the last chapter, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus is the beloved servant and son who reveals, teaches, and redeems according to the mercy and goodness of God. Lord Jesus, there are many ways perhaps that this could apply to our lives. Maybe maybe somebody here has viewed scripture through the lens of tradition for their whole life, and in it they have missed you. If that's the case, Lord, may they see you your goodness and your mercy. Maybe one of us, some of us are guilty of of holding up our traditions above scripture and bearing or casting heavy burdens 
on somebody else's shoulder. If that's the case, Lord, may we see that and return to you. And perhaps somebody here is that bruised reed, that smoking wick. If it were up to the ways, may they find in you mercy and redemption in the gospel, even in their brokenness, even in their sin and shame. May they come to you as you call and find rest and redemption and healing for all of eternity. Oh Lord, I pray that you would do your work. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name, amen.